Well, there's nothing uh, more tragic than I think than failing at the final hurdle. You know, the proverb comes, of course, from the athletics uh, arena, the 110 meter hurdles. You run and run and run, you're out there in the lead, and then just before the finish time, whack, you hit the hurdle, down you come, and it's all over. Uh, some years back in Australia, there was a, there was a football team, this is Australian rules football, right? And they won nearly every match in the season. They won all the finals matches, and then they came to the grand final, and they messed it up. <laughs> and all the season's wins, they came to nothing. I think we can all identify with that fear uh, of failure. Uh, you know, you've put in all that effort to study for the exam, and then you get the date wrong. My wife did that once at Moore College. <laughs> Or that project at work, you've done putting the months of preparation and then it all just fails at the last minute. Or that stupid mistake. Well, verse 39 outlines two possibilities for us in the Christian life. Either we persevere on in faith to the end, or we shrink back and are destroyed. And so the big question really this morning in our passage is, how can we ensure that we will press on in active discipleship? How can we ensure that we won't fail at, at the last hurdle, as it were, but endure on to the end? Because in the end, it's not how you begin the Christian life that matters. It is how you end it. Well, our passage comes at a, this climactic point in the book of Hebrews. The book, you remember, is written to Jewish Christians who have uh, now being tempted to fall away from Christ and go back to Judaism uh, because it has just been too hard. Uh, you can see on the screen the, the context, chapters 1 to 3, uh, the author has been preparing the readers to hear his main argument, chapters 1 to 3. He urged them of the importance of hearing God's word, not hardening their hearts, but taking it to heart, listening, obeying, trusting, because those who don't obey, don't persevere, don't enter his rest. And that was a wonderful preparation, I think, for the main theological section in this letter, chapters 5 to 10. It's, it's marked off there by those, those two exhortations uh, in chapters 4 and 10, to hold fast and draw near. So next slide, you can see in chapter 4, uh, he urges them, since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That's chapter 4, verse 14. Or in our passage here today, 10, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Verse 21, since we have a great high priest. Verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. And uh, in chapters 5 to 10, he's explained to us at length why it's so important that we stick to Jesus. Why we need to keep drawing near and holding fast. And his simple answer has really been that Jesus is better. Chapters 5 to 7, he's a, he's a better high priest. He's, he's eternal. He's perfect. He's heavenly. He doesn't have his own sins. Uh, chapters 8 to 10, he's, he's got a better ministry. It's built on better promises. It's got a better sacrifice that he's, he's brought into a better place and a better covenant and, and all these things. 
So he's shown them again and again that to give up on Christ and to go back to, to external religion like Judaism with its rules and rituals and its holy places is giving up really their only real chance of salvation. And so as we come to the climax then, the rousing exhortation is this. Don't throw away your confidence. Don't fail at the final hurdle. Endure to the end. Well, we will turn then to our passage. There's two exhortations with a scary warning in the middle. The first exhortation is to confident assurance. We're at point one. Now, the basis for that exhortation is in verse 19 to 21. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. So there's the, there, there's the basis for the command, those, the, those things. They sum up in a wonderful way what the first five chapters have been about. Despite our sinfulness, we can have confidence to enter in to the presence of the living God because of Jesus. The reason for our assurance, we're told here, it's the blood of Christ. It is his flesh offered on the cross, his, his perfect sacrifice that paid for our sins once and for all, past, present, and future, securing our forgiveness. And so there's no longer a barrier, as in the Old Testament, a curtain, as it were, to cut us off from the presence of God. Jesus is the true and perfect curtain. He is now the entrance into the very presence of God. And, and then we're reminded, verse 21, that not only has he died, but he's alive. He's in heaven. He's our great high priest. He's gone there on our behalf. He represents us before God, and he's, he's there, and we're pleading our case. He's saying, look, he's forgiven. She's right with you. His sins are paid for. She can come in. And so this wonderful summary, then, of those chapters is that we can have confidence to enter the presence of God. Well, I wonder if that is how you would summarize your relationship with God. Assured, confident, convinced, certain. Because that's what our experience of Christ should be if we've understand, understood chapters 5 to 10. Joyful, hopeful, assured, certain. But perhaps among us this morning there are those whose experience of Christianity is very different. Guilt, doubt, uncertainty, feelings of imperfection, unworthiness, and inadequacy. Now, of course, those are common feelings for the Christian, imperfect as we are from time to time. Uh, we haven't arrived yet. We haven't understood the gospel fully. But our consistent experience, we're told here, should be one of confidence. Certainty we're right with God. Assurance we're accepted. And if we lack that experience in our hearts, well, we may still be Christian, we're still trusting in Jesus, but we may have failed to really grasp the true significance of the gospel. 
and the achievement of his death for us. If, if, and that, if that is your feeling, then you need to go back and read chapters 5 to 10 again. Listen to God's word about his son. There's the summary. We can have confidence to enter into the very presence of the holy God, despite our sin, because we've been forgiven. Well, I don't want to tread over that ground too much, but the point here in this passage is to draw out the implications of it. If we have this confidence through Jesus' death and resurrection, well, it should lead on to three exhortations, to faith, hope, and love. They're those three let us statements. Verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. And verse 24, let us consider. So the first one, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It's, a, it's an exhortation, if you like, to, to take hold of all those benefits that Jesus has tied to bring, to, to, to draw near to God, confident assurance to Him. We're told we need to draw near with a true heart, genuine, sincere to draw near with full assurance, no doubts of God's love, no fears of his judgment. We're to draw near with hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We draw near knowing that all our sins, past, present, and future, have been fully and finally forgiven at the cross. We draw near with our bodies washed with, with pure water. Maybe it's an allusion to baptism, but certainly it's a picture of the purification and cleansing that the, that the Spirit has brought for us, whether internal or external, we are clean, forgiven, free, pure. Just as God had promised in Ezekiel 36, He was going to cleanse His people from their uncleanness and give them a heart that, that loved Him and obeyed Him and put, their spirit in, uh, put His Spirit in their hearts. So as we who live under this new covenant, we draw near to God confident, assured. I think it's really an exhortation here to preach the gospel to ourselves. Because there are times when we will feel unworthy or feel unclean. It's normal as we come to understand God's holiness more and more and our sinfulness and our failings all the more. And it's in those times of uh, inadequacy when the guilt and the doubt is creeping in, we need to remember the gospel. Jesus died for you. Your conscience has been cleansed. Your sins have been forgiven. You can draw near with confidence. Perhaps you say, you've got no idea what I've done. How could I draw near? God knows. Jesus died for it. He invites you to draw near. Oh, secondly, verse 23, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. If faith looks to the past and what Jesus has done, hope looks to the future. And the encouragement for us is to hold fast on this hope without, without wavering. It's been a big theme in the book of Hebrews. You can see on the screen, I think, chapter 3, verse 6. 
We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope. Or 6.11, we desire each of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. And so because of Jesus' death in the past, we can now have a confident hope of the future. We can know for sure God will welcome us in to his heavenly presence. And again, we're given the basis of this hope. In verse 23, he who promised is faithful. God has promised that if we trust in Jesus, there is a promised inheritance waiting for us. And God doesn't lie. We've been told that in chapter 6, verse 18. By two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And so once again, we're, we're called to live in the light of this assurance, to, to preach the gospel to ourselves, because there's times that will no doubt come when everything else is falling around falling down apart, uh, around us, where we're, we're persecuted, maybe we suffer, maybe we're sick, maybe we lose our job, maybe we fall into sin, maybe something else. And the temptation will always be to waver, to doubt. Does God really love me? Will God really welcome me into heaven? And we need to remind ourselves, if we are Christian, our hope is assured. Because Jesus died in the past, we must hold fast, cling on, refuse to let go. Faith, hope, and then the third is an exhortation to love. Look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. The reminder here is that the Christian life is Communal, when we put our trust in Jesus, we're adopted into his family. and we, we need one another. If we're going to continue to, to draw near to God in faith, if we're going to hold fast to our confidence, then we need one another. We're told to stir up one another to love and good deeds. Uh, the word here, I like it, is that it kind of means to provoke. Uh, it's like the, you know, the young child deliberately uh, irritating their, their sibling uh, to get a response. We're to provoke positively. We're to arouse, stir up, encourage, help one another, love, and live out the Christian life in good works. Now, notice this is something that we have to think about. Verse 20, look at verse 24 again. Let us consider how to stir up one another. And so before I come to church on Sunday or I go to GG or I'm thinking during the week about my brothers and sisters, I'm to think, how could I encourage someone to, to live for Jesus today? How could I urge them on in loving other people? How could I encourage that, that brother or sister who's doubting or suffering at the moment? How could I encourage that mature Christian to, to, to not get stale, to press on in, in serving Jesus? Uh, often here at SMAT, we run a, a training session called Ministry of the Pew. We don't have any pews in SMAT, but they're those seats that you sit on. And it's meant to encourage people to do just this. Ask questions, to think. Uh, how could I encourage someone before the service? Pray for the preacher? 
arrive early to uh, welcome the newcomer, think carefully who I could sit next to in the service? How could I encourage one another during the service? Uh, By talking to the newcomer during greeting time, uh, singing loudly in the songs, uh, confidently affirming the creed, taking notes during the sermon. How could I encourage brothers and sisters after the service? Uh, Staying back instead of going home straight away, talking about what I've learnt, praying for one another. Now, of course, it goes without saying that I can't do any of those things unless I'm here, unless I'm meeting with other Christians. That's why he goes on in verse uh, 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, the New Testament lends no idea to the support, no idea, no support to the idea of a lone Christian. If you're going to do any of these things here, then you have to be here. I just want you to imagine for a moment someone who's had a tough week at work. Uh, They've worked overtime. They've got an unreasonable boss. It's family troubles at home. And they make the effort to turn up on Thursday night to GG. And they get get to the, the house and they look around and everyone's away. What a discouragement. Maybe they should have stayed home too, not bothered with the effort. How different as if they, they look around and there's Matthew and there's Jane and there is John and they're all there. They're enthusiastic and they're ready to encourage one another. They're praying for him in his difficult week. They're spurring one another on. What a wonderful community that would be to be a part of. And so if we've been neglecting to meet together as Christians, here is one of the uh, best opportunities for me to remind you again, it must be an absolute priority for us to meet with God's people. Now, I think really that this is actually as simple as making a a decision. See, there's, there's always going to be some reason that you can think of why you don't want to turn up on Sunday. Uh, you know, work tomorrow, uh, assignments are building up, it's exam period, I'm tired, I'm sick, I need to look after the children, I'm on holidays. There's always going to be something. We need to make it our default decision. This is a priority. I'll be there to encourage my brothers and sisters. Now, it may well be that I'm preaching to the converted here this morning. I don't know. But let me encourage you on. Do it more and more. And encourage your brothers and sisters who are not here. They need to be. Well, we must not get into the habit of missing church because the stakes are rather high. Look at how verse 25 ends. Encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, the day being referred here is the day of the Lord, the judgment day. Malachi wrote of this in Malachi chapter 4. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. 
when all the arrogant, all the evildoers will be stubble, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it leaves them neither root nor branch. You see, there's a day coming, a judgment day, when all who have failed to bow the knee to Jesus as their king will face eternal judgment. They will be eternally separated from the presence of God. And that day could be tomorrow. And so it's important as ever for us to keep on encouraging one another to press on. It's that encouragement that leads into the severe warning of verses 26 to 31. We're at point two, a chilling warning against deliberate sin. Now, the the two things are related, of course. If I'm failing to meet with God's people, then I'm putting myself and other people in danger of falling away from Christ because I'm robbing myself and I'm robbing them of the encouragement that they need to press on in following Jesus. And it's been my experience over the years that one of the earliest steps towards someone walking away from following Jesus is that they stop meeting with his people. It doesn't matter what the reason was why they stopped, whether they were hurt by someone or they got disillusioned or whatever it was. Their absence from church is one of the surest indicators that they're in big trouble. So the warning comes then in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, I think it's important that we're clear on what the passage is not saying. It's not saying that if we've ever deliberately committed a sin, there's no more hope for you, that's it. We're finished. The key here is not that we have deliberately sinned. We've all done that, I take it. But that we go on sinning deliberately. We, we go on doing something that we know is wrong and we refuse to repent of it. Now, in the Old Testament, Numbers 15, such intentional transgressions and defiance was punishable by death. There was no forgiveness. If we persist in such deliberate sin, then it is clear that actually Jesus is not the Lord of my life. And I'm not trusting in, my, in his sacrifice on the cross, no matter how much I say otherwise. And so I persist in dating that non-Christian, and I refuse to repent of it. I persist in corruption and greed. I won't turn from it. Persist in idolizing my family, and I won't turn from it. Such a deliberate sin shows that whatever that thing is, it is an idol in my life. It is more important to me than Jesus. And it therefore represents a a rejection of Christ and all that he brings. And if only Jesus' sacrifice can bring forgiveness of sins, then to reject him means to lose our only hope of forgiveness. 
all that remains, we're told, is a certain judgment, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, to help us grasp the magnitude of this punishment, he takes us back to the Old Testament. He says in verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. It's a quotation from Deuteronomy 17. In that chapter, if a person was found worshipping a false god, i.e. an idol, and the charge was established by two or three witnesses, then they face the death penalty. They would be stoned to death. Now, if that was bad, how much worse to reject Christ, to whom the whole Old Testament system pointed? It goes on, verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? The whole letter has been convincing us how great Jesus is. The heir of everything, the sustainer of creation, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his being, exalted at the right hand of God in majesty and power. How dreadful do you think it would be to take the king of the universe and trample upon him in contempt as you reject his lordship over your life? How dreadful to profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Jesus poured out his blood on the cross to win our only chance of forgiveness, to, to look upon that in contempt and say, no, I'd rather, I'd rather sin than trusting Jesus. What a scandal to outrage the spirit of grace, to, to live in insolent, arrogant rejection of the one who has anointed Jesus and led him to the cross. It's very strong language, isn't it? But his point is, if we deny the lordship of Jesus in any part of our life and refuse to repent, that thing is an idol. And we treat his sacrifice with scorn and contempt. What other hope could there be of, except judgment for such a person? Verse 30 reminds us of God's character. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The quotation is from Deuteronomy 32, Song of Moses. And there, God reminds his people that he will take personal responsibility for taking vengeance on his enemies. Now, I think that is a terrifying prospect that really does not bear imagination. Here, then, is the warning. If you are here today as a non-Christian or a Christian living in deliberate sin, you are in grave danger. The consequences are real. Please repent. Turn back to Jesus. Let him be king in your life. Trust in his sacrifice. You will be forgiven. God is giving you here in the strongest possible terms a warning that is meant to shock you to your senses. Because if you reject Jesus, 
there will be no escape from a future of conscious, eternal torment. Now, when you think about it, whatever that idol is in my life, it's drawing me away from Jesus. A relationship, sex, power, money, whatever it is. It's simply not worth it, is it? Really. But the only way you'll turn from sins like these is if you live in a community of believers where you're reminded of the gospel and encouraged to follow Jesus. Well, with that warning ringing loudly, our author, thankfully, turns once again to exhortation and encouragement. Because even though we may be in danger, as the initial readers were, the fact that Jesus has not returned yet means it's not too late. Isn't that good news? It's not too late. We can heed the warning. We can keep enduring. We'll be saved. Wonderful. And so he begins by urging them to remember their past, recall their past endurance. Have a look at verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. It reminds them, when when they became Christians, they had a, a really hard time. The author, he knows them personally. He knows what they've been through. He knows how they were scorned by their neighbors, Christian, uh, Jew and Gentile. To the Jews, the early Christians were a heretical sect. To the Romans, they were a disloyal threat to emperor worship. And so they faced public abuse, like Jesus did. They were persecuted, like Jesus did. And yet, we're, the author reminds them, they endured it all. In fact, they even stood with other Christians who were facing the same thing. It was, it was such a godly response. They started so well. Of course, we too are likewise called to suffer for Jesus, to stand with those who suffer for Jesus, because the Christian life is not one of self-protection. It is a life of suffering and sacrifice. Now, last week, uh, Andrew, our senior pastor, was away at GAFCON. There was 2,000 Anglicans from 50 countries. It's the biggest Anglican gathering in history. And they were gathered there together to commit themselves in the face of persecution from the outside and heresy in the church on the inside, to commit themselves again to faithfully proclaiming Christ to the nations. And many of the people there have suffered greatly for holding to that, from without and from within. We must stand with such people. Well, not only that, but verse 34. You had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Not only did they suffer physically, they, it cost them materially as well. And yet, despite all of that, they accepted it with joy. Isn't that remarkable? Someone turns up to your house, raids your house, takes your stuff. You know, praise be to God. 
But they'd understood Jesus' teaching on this. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys nor thieves break in and steal, for where your treasure is there your heart will be also. And at the, at the beginning, they, their whole life showed they weren't living for this world. They knew that their heavenly possessions were so much more valuable than their material ones. So they're saying, look, remember how you began. It was so good. Remember all those sacrifices for the gospel. Remember how you persevered in suffering. Remember how you endured being dispossessed and you rejoiced in it. Now, I suspect some of us here this morning, this is a very radical view of the Christian life. For many of us, we want to live a Christian life that doesn't cost us, that doesn't cost us persecution, that doesn't cost our comfort. And so far from rejoicing when our possessions are taken away, we seek to follow Christ so that we can gain more. But it was Paul who said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. I think we all need to ask ourselves personally if we really believe that to be true. Are we living for the next life or for this one? Because if you're not living for heaven, you're not going to endure when the going gets tough. It's just like the parable of the four soils. Two of the soils, if you remember didn't bear fruit because of persecution and the worries of the world. But even then, it's, it's, it's not that they, it's, it doesn't matter that they really started well. It matters as how, that they finish well. And so on the basis of their past endurance, he urges them on to future endurance. Look what he says in verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. He's saying, look, you've gone through so much already. Don't give up now. You endured then. You need to endure now as well. Picture this. You've got this wonderful, precious gift, and then they feel like throwing it in the bin. I mean, it's just crazy. Like studying for an exam, hour after hour after hour, and then don't turn up. Now work hard on that project and then resign before you get the bonus. What's the point? Don't give up. Keep going. Heaven is valuable beyond measure. It will be worth it. Now in chapters 11 to 12, we're going to see in the following weeks, Example after example of how every genuine believer in history has embraced this kind of life. Suffering now, looking forward in hope to the future. Of course, it's all modeled on Jesus himself. You see in Hebrews chapter 12, I think we've got it there on the screen. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him 
endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not be grow weary or faint-hearted. He's saying, don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. You need to endure. Now, there's a hymn that puts this quite well. We probably haven't sung it here before. It goes, on like, goes like this. It's fairly repetitive. Next line. Go on. Go on. Go on in the Lord. Be strengthened. Go on in the Lord. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You must go on. Go on in the Lord. That's the chorus. First one. Trials may come and discouragements too. You must go on. Go on in the Lord. Yesterday's gone. His mercies are new. You must go on. Go on in the Lord. Press on. Press on. Press on in the Lord. Be strengthened. Press on in the Lord. Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You must press on. Press on in the Lord. And you know what? It goes on for 11 verses. <laughs> Each with a chorus. I'll stop there. We need to go on. And so drawing on the prophet Habakkuk, in those final verses, he, he lays the two possibilities before them. Verse 37, yet a little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Do you remember Habakkuk in the Old Testament reading? He wanted justice. God said, I'm sending the Babylonians. And so he looked forward for, to the coming judgment that was coming on his people. And God says, if you trust me, you will be righteous. The one who shrinks back will face his judgment. So those are the two choices. And Habakkuk provides the model response. Remember Habakkuk chapter 3. Because even though I can't say it, I will trust and rejoice in the Lord. And thankfully, again, he ends on a positive note. Verse 39. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now note again, this is a real warning. If you give up on the Christian life, we're told here, you will be destroyed by God. But the author here doesn't expect his readers will do that. He expects them, as every other genuine Christian, to heed the warning, listen to the exhortations, and keep enduring. So I guess we're back to where we began. How can we ensure we press on in active discipleship? How can we ensure we don't fail at the final hurdle, but endure to the end? Well, we've been told these three things. Draw near to God. Remember what Jesus has done. Hold fast in hope. Remember his promises. And stir up one another. Without those things, we're in grave danger indeed. And so three points and as we finish. Keep trusting what Christ has done. Keep preaching the gospel to yourself. Keep reading your Bible. Keep meeting with other Christians who will remind you of these things. 
We need to hear the gospel again and again and again and again. Jesus, our high priest, his perfect sacrifice, our conscience is cleansed fully, forgiveness, full and free. We need to remember it again and again. Secondly, we need to remember what he has promised us. We don't live for this world. We live for a heavenly world to come. All around us, we're being told, live for now. Live for comfort. Climb the ladder. Get the house. We need to hear the gospel again and again and again so that we go through this life with a heavenly perspective in which we're willing to suffer for Christ and give up our earthly comforts. And finally, to keep being committed to gathering with God's people. Now, it's not that coming to church saves you or gets you brownie points with God. Only the death of Jesus makes you right with God. It's not that coming to church makes you a Christian any more than if I you know, go and stand in a garage somewhere that uh, doesn't make me a car, right? <laughs> it's trusting in Jesus that makes you a Christian. But cars belong in garages. And Christians belong in churches. We need one another. We need to encourage one another because the Christian life is long and difficult. And if we don't keep listening to God's word, and if we deprive ourselves and others of the encouragement that we need, then we're going to start listening to the voice of the world instead of the voice of Jesus. And we'll be in grave danger if falling into this deliberate sin of which there is no forgiveness. And so whether it's the exam period coming up or the ridicule of my friends or the finances are tight, discouraged by my parents, I need to keep going. And we need to keep encouraging one another to keep going. There's someone that you haven't seen in church for a while. It's your responsibility to give them a call. Check how they're going. If you've been away, please come back. Because there is a judgment day. There is wrath. And we do not play with these things. Don't fail at the final hurdle. Be assured as you look back. Hold fast as you look forward. And persevere now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for the wonderful news of the gospel. We thank you so much that Jesus came and died for us so that all our sins, past and present and future, can be forgiven. We thank you for bringing us into this family of yours where we can give one another the encouragement that we need. We pray that you would help us and help us to help one another to press on. 
Father, we pray that you would help us not to fall into deliberate sin, thinking that any, anything or anyone could be more important than following Jesus. Help us to repent of these things and to receive again the forgiveness that you offer. And Lord, we thank you that you do promise us an abiding possession to come, a place in your heavenly kingdom that will be better by far than all we experience in this world. And we pray that by your Holy Spirit that you would help us to truly please you now and that you'll keep us trusting Jesus to the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.